episode 133, A Primer in Taking on Risk. Today, I speak with Michael Hunt, D.O., Chief Executive Officer, President of St. Vincent Health Partners, and Chief Information Officer for St. Vincent Medical Center. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It's harder than it looks, and it doesn't exactly look easy. How's that as a statement to sum up a foray into risk-sharing reimbursement models? Today, I get a window into the experience of Dr. Michael Hunt, who has been instrumental in guiding his organization through the risk-share minefields. Dr. Hunt is Chief Executive Officer and President of St. Vincent Health Partners, where he is also the Chief Information Officer for St. Vincent Medical Center. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Hey, if you could do me a quick favor and go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast, if you enjoy listening to it, I would really appreciate it. It helps others find the show. Thanks so much. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dr. Michael Hunt. Good morning. How are you? Since you did get so good at being strategically an early adopter and being able to roll programs out rapidly, that a lot of what you're working on now is maximizing risk-sharing type arrangements or quality type arrangements. How much, if I may inquire, how much of your revenue these days is risk-sharing versus FFS? That's a great question. So from a physician hospital organization that's completely independent, our success is when all of the members of the PHO are successful in shared savings. So we are investing in our membership and we get rewarded at the end for the most part. And so we, in order for us to be successful in Connecticut, we do not live long if our members don't get shared savings. That's a an impetus. So from that perspective, we have had to really make sure that we understand what the opportunity is and how to manage that opportunity. From a provider perspective, our providers are fairly uncomfortable with risk. They're fairly wary, especially physicians. I just talked to one of our subspecialists on Monday night, and they are so worried that their current model of operation as an independent subspecialty needs to have that fee-for-service protected. So they're looking for the right mix of opportunity. So from my perspective as the CEO of the PHO, what I've done is said to them, think about it like you're in, in the stock market. We know that you want to have a stable base of less risk, which is your fee-for-service side. But in order to maximize your future potential, we have to be able to have in our portfolio participating in every single reimbursement model out there because there will be sweet spots that will be good for a gastroenterologist or a surgeon or primary care. And today, the models of reimbursement really have focused on attributing patients to a PCP and holding fee-for-service in the subspecialty world. We all know that the sustained growth rate is 
essentially capped. And we don't see with MACRA that fee-for-service on the physician fee schedule will increase by more than a half of a percent until 2024. So physicians have to face the reality that fee-for-service is not going to be the strength that, that they used to have in their operations. They're going to have to move, and, and if they want to see sustainable growth in their revenue to meet the constant costs of operating a business, they're going to have to do it on the quality side. So we're getting them ready to do upside. They've been doing upside. Our next challenge is really going to have how do we help them be an active, accepted participant in the full risk, which means downside, and that hasn't, and the fear of the unknown really scares them. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I was going to ask you what I now realize is a very oversimplified question, which is what disease states you're considering for risk sharing. But it sounds like what you're more doing is reviewing for each different physician specialty or patient population, looking at all of the various reimbursement models that are possible, and then figuring out which one is best. We're finding that patients aren't as loyal or religiously fixed on their favorite physician. They are really fixed on, are you providing access when I want it? And we're starting to see trends that may say that in Connecticut, we have a significant subspecialty presence in physicians today. We have a more limited primary care physicians today. So in the attribution models as they exist, we're having to talk to our payers to say, we need to look at that. The consumer wants a, an experience that may not be aligned with a PCP as we have known it in the past. We know that our patients are much more using the internet and information to go directly to a subspecialist, perhaps. We know that we are going to have to have a flavor that if the definition is based upon attribution, attribution, as we know it, is going to have to be changed. And we are your partner that will help you look at that in the long run. So not only are we looking at it from the new models of reimbursement, we're also looking at where do those dollars go within that total cost of care? And can we work with in these new models of care to align those quality performance enhanced services that we need so much for why we went down the path of, of healthcare transformation. But in Connecticut, you can't lay that into PCP because they are a significant minority of physicians. This might be a pretty self-evident question. A lot of what we were just talking about relative to the risk sharing and the shared savings models, we were talking about from a financial perspective, but there's something like 14 certified ACOs in Connecticut. Does Correct. this also have just as much to do with growing and perhaps preventing network leakage on the back end, all this work into the medical management that you were just talking about? What I think we have not done very well in is really explain to the consumer how all the new models of reimbursement affect them. So I think that is a big block that remains a huge opportunity for everyone to really understand. The second component is how do we help our providers of that healthcare team to effectively participate? 
So what we've seen and what we've actually embraced is our voluntary participation within the bundled payment program. When you look at BPCI, helped us over time really develop the ability to manage patients across the total continuum of care because in BPCI, you accept that patient for a period of time after they are admitted acutely and you have to come in at the target price. And now I'm having interesting conversations both within our network and outside of our network because in BPCI, that patient is admitted to the hospital. We've selected 90-day period. So from the time that they are admitted and after discharge, we have a full 90 days where every dollar is calculated and has to come in within that target price. And we now know how that dollar does, both on a quality perspective and on a cost perspective. And we now have to gain a confidence that we can articulate our success to the consumer, to the provider, and bring everyone along. So in our BPCI journey, we are still learning how do you tell a Medicare beneficiary, thank you for being admitted to our hospital. Because you are a Medicare fee-for-service beneficiary, and our hospital has been recognized as a BPCI participant, you're automatically enrolled in this program. So whether by choice or not, we, CMS, views us as responsible for your care for the next 90 days. And so we're going to do everything we can to provide you with the highest care, best quality, and effective cost of your care throughout those 90 days. And I can tell you today that if a patient is seen within our network, is kept in our network, and is managed by everybody in our network, we're being very successful at lowering readmissions, lowering the time that they're in dedicated care, whether in the hospital or skilled nursing facility or home health, they're receiving high-quality care because they're not being readmitted. We know that if they go out of our network, we know that they have up to 3 to 5% higher likelihood of being readmitted in the 90 days than if they go to our partners. We know that if they are seen in a non-network facility and come back into the hospital, their costs tend to be even higher than if they were readmitted from within our, our network. And so we validated that we can perform in these new models of care with high-quality, cost-effective care and now we really have to figure out how do we expand that across the board agnostically to payer and how do we really have those conversations and prove to our customers that we've been able to, and their success. So, for instance, in one of our skilled nursing facilities that we have that is out of network, they are very wary of us or perhaps even angry with us because they think that they haven't gotten as many patients as they have in the past and they have felt that that network utilization is working for us, but perhaps not with them. And I get constant phone calls from those non-network skilled nursing facilities who said, A, you're not sending me the business you used to. B, you are trying to get into our doors and help adjust our business, which we don't like. And when I have a conversation with them to say, whether that patient comes to a skilled nursing facility within my network or not, I'm responsible for that 90 days. If that patient exceeds the target price, me and my network have to pay CMS back or potentially pay CMS back. When our patient goes to you because of patient's choice, you have to be a good partner, even if you're not in our network, because you are affecting the overall success of our program. 
the realization and understanding of how these new models of reimbursement affect every partner, every healthcare provider, every patient is still not well appreciated, not well understood, and certainly those organizations may not be excited about that. <laughs> so I'm going to back up and ask you a couple of just really quick, rapid-fire questions about the bundled payments that you have going on, and then I want to circle back to asking about how you qualify your narrow network, okay? So sure. BPCI, BP, yeah. obviously stands for bundled payment. What does the uh, CI stand for? Care improvement. Got it. What disease categories are you currently working with in bundled payments? I mean, obviously, you said you want to expand this and make it agnostic across the board, but like, what's the tip of your spear? So we're we're really looking at congestive heart failure, uh, pneumonia, UTI. We have um, bundles in orthopedics, lower extremity, and we have non-infectious orthopedic, just to name a few. That's pretty many. And are you assuming pharmacy risk as well as medical risk? It's the total cost of care within those 90 days. For bundled payments, it's really is the facility and, and professional fee, not so much on the, on the drugs. We're lucky, but it's the total cost. So if medications are provided as part of that facility, then it's, and that, that cost, we do get it. Okay. So back to the network, how are you selecting who those partners are? I mean, is there a checklist or? Like, yes. What, yes. Do tell. So what we have done is we think we're unique because every participating organization in the continuum of care that wants to be a part of our network has to be a member of the PHO. So we have five skilled nursing facilities, four home health agencies that have chosen to be a member. So when we made it known that we were putting the network together, we said, we're not going to consider you a vendor. We consider you a partner because you're going to have to transform. We're going to have to break barriers from every aspect of healthcare. You need to be a member of this organization. You need to be committed to transformation, and you have to demonstrate your ability and want to be an active participant within our meetings and within our committee structure which is very limited in the number of committees that we have, but they meet religiously once a month to overcome barriers. So there is a level of commitment to be a participant within the network. What we also did is said, in order to begin the playing field, you have to meet a, a entry-level set of requirements. So when we started the PHO, we used the information that all of the skilled nursing facilities or home health agencies submitted to the government and we said, this is going to be our minimum requirement. And from that perspective, we were actually able to use what was publicly already available in evaluating differences between organizations. We used it to say, this is our selection criteria. So for instance, there was an organization that had almost a perfect score of everything, high quality, cost effective, all that you looked on the CMS website, they met everything. However, they failed miserably in patient satisfaction. And the way we used different components and we weighted patient satisfaction to a significant degree of success, they actually fell out of being, being a contender for admission because they had such a low patient satisfaction score. So we started and we said to the initial group of, of members, you are going to meet this minimum standard. 
However, once they w admitted and agreed to be a part of the PHO, then we said to them, you now tell us where you are going to be and what you're going to hold each other accountable for. And that will become the new minimum. So now when we go out and if the organization needs an additional skilled nursing facility home health agency, not only do they come in, have to meet the entry level that the government gets and, and currently produces, but now they have to come in and prove that they can enter at the same level with the same quality and cost effectiveness as the other organizations that are already here, which means that they have to demonstrate and be able to pre present to us in a, in a cohesive way that they meet the additional requirements that those founding members have established. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was the importance of managing the continuity of care and the transitions of care. Is it part of your checklist? I mean, someone might be able to, in a very insular fashion and in their own silo, manage what goes on within that facility, but not have the technical or other wherewithal to share information across facilities. How do you think about that and measure it or manage it? We have established in our copyrighted, we call it the playbook. In our playbook that we give every member of the organization, it has four sections. One section has the quality metrics that they are required to meet based upon the payers that we currently have. So that gives them an agnostic view. If you meet these quality and utilization standards, you will be successful in any program that you're in with us. And we do it agnostically so that they can't say, I'm going to do A, B, or C based upon, we, we, don't, we don't burden the provider with having to memorize who that attribution is from. That's number one. Number two, what we've done, we've identified more than 140 transitions of care, whether that patient goes from the hospital to a SNF or from the office to the ED. We have literally gone in and identified every single possible way of sharing a patient between our members. And what we did is we said to them, this is the minimum amount of information that you are required to share when you move a patient. You don't get to just refer a patient. You get to hand off of a patient, which means that you do not stop holding that patient's hand and, and, and expecting them to go to the downstream provider until you've actually contacted, interacted, and provided enough information with that downstream provider to be successful for the patient. So every step of the way, we live the quadruple aim with patient quality and understanding of where that patient is. That is really our most important aspect of anything that we do. And in that 140 transitions of care with those minimum set of standards, we expect that that handoff represents the need of that patient. And what we have done when we started the process, we actually hand calculated our success rate because we found no technical tool that allowed us to capture that automatically. So we actually did a lot of phone calling, a lot of checking up and snooping, mm -hmm. if you will, and really making sure that our members were participating and were successful. And now what we do is we spot check. And in our spot checks, when we find that there's a failure, and now our members are pretty vocal when there is a failure, then we go in to figure out how do we fix it. So I'll give you a perfect example. Today, we know a lot of physicians. If you're a PCMH or patient-centered medical home certified physician, part of the mandate of being PCMH certified is that you provide access 24-7. But we know that a lot of physicians perhaps limit the access to their office 
to a certain time frame, or they limit the way that their answering service works. So what we've done, and one of the first things that we did, is we actually looked at the scripting of patient office after hours recording. And we found that the first thing that those physicians would say is, if this is an emergency, dial 911. And what we asked them to do simply is tell your patient their options. Don't offer them that choice of 911 till the end of the conversation because you really should have had that conversation as starting when they came to your practice. You should be reminding them about the appropriate utilization of the appropriate level of care at every office visit. This should be something that you and your staff are constantly engaging with so that when a patient calls after hours, they are really understanding of what it is that they're wanting and needing and that we can actually use the health services within our network appropriately. And so what we've been able to do with simple interventions such as that one is we've reduced our unnecessary utilization of the ED by 25% year after year. That is an unexpected solution that I'm sure very few people think of. Oh, yeah. And it's really interesting to me because when I have talked about that, the first thing providers will do is they put on their malpractice hat and say, oh, my God, you're putting yourself at risk for malpractice. My thought is I'm not putting myself at malpractice. I'm really enforcing the relationship with my patient because I'm trying to be much more proactive with me and my staff when we take care of that patient at every opportunity to remind them, here is the services that are available to you. You want this heightened sense of togetherness or unity within our network. You will get that sense if you use the appropriate service at the appropriate time. So what we did is we aligned our urgent care network to every physician office, whether they're a specialty or whether they're a primary care office. And we said to those offices around every single urgent care, this is your extension. So what we've been able to do, for instance, is we have physicians, because we don't have enough primary care providers, we say to a patient, choose Dr. Hunt, he'll be your PCP. But he may not be open during the times you are available. So his partner is our urgent care that is open until 8 or 9 p.m. or 10 p.m., And what we've now done is we're able to increase our communication between an office and our urgent care. So urgent cares have become an extension. So we've had diabetic patients who have failed to go to their offices and have been uncontrolled in diabetes and haven't been able to manage their glucoses or get their machines and have a bunch of socioeconomic barriers to care, if you will. And we found, for instance, one one of our success stories was a gentleman who was a shift worker who could didn't wanted to sleep during the business day couldn't see his doctor didn't have his appropriate glucometer and glucose sticks and taking his insulin appropriately and was constantly being seen in the emergency room and being admitted so what we did is say to him go see your PCP i know he's not open when you want to sleep but he has a relationship with that urgent care He now goes and gets most of his care at the urgent care, believe it or not. And that urgent care and the PCP manage all of it. He hasn't had to go to a subspecialist and he hasn't been admitted since that collaboration has worked. I mean, it's not like a patient at two o'clock in the morning is the place that they're looking to be is the emergency room. Exactly. (laughs) So if they understand that they can be seen first thing tomorrow morning or if they understand what other options are available to them 
I think most patients, I mean, true medical emergencies aside, I mean. And what we've also been able to do then is try to help our providers who have not really, I mean, their, their full day is, I want to take care of a patient. And what we're trying to do is empower them and arm them with information. So for instance, we have a, a very large pediatric practice. And it frustrates the heck out of the out of that pediatric practice because they are the traditional, independent, hardworking pediatric offices. They're literally open seven days a week, 365 days a year. They open at 7 a.m. and they close at 11 p.m. They try to be very accommodating to their patients. And yet their patients, no matter how much access they provide, have a love affair, literally, with some emergency rooms. And they will go to the emergency rooms for URI, for, you know, cold, and they'll go to the emergency room for a sore throat, or they'll go to the emergency room for earache. And those pediatricians get so frustrated because they've tried to be as open and as available and as accommodating as possible, but yet our consumers are selecting more expensive locations. And now what we're trying to do is figure out how do we help the provider have that conversation How do we talk to those patients? Because as I said, our consumers, with all of what's going on in healthcare today, from a geopolitical perspective, we straddled the healthcare provider to be the workhorse of educating the consumer, which I think has been one of our opportunities that we should really empower upon is how do we help our legislators? How do we help people who who manage benefit plans, whether you're Medicare, whether you're Medicaid, whether you're a commercial? How do we help them inform the patients of the right location of care? Because the the consumer has certainly not really there are pockets where the consumer has has not found yet the value of the appropriate location of service. Probably several months ago at this point, I interviewed Chris Klump, who is the CEO of uh, Collective Medical Technologies. And that's their gig. They've done a lot of work in how do you inform patients and use care extenders to make sure that patients are aware of, of their options. So it is a very tangled web, which is deceptively simple. I mean, you'd think it would be easy and it turns out to be anything, but. And so think about it today. We're in, even if we're in upside risk, and when you look at the total cost of care, because we have consumer preference that hasn't really been filtered out, at the end of the contract period, when shared savings can be realized, and you find you've left opportunity on the table and you cannot reinforce your professional healthcare provider activity because they failed to get shared savings, because they failed to get to that cost savings, because they think and they feel that they have been not empowered or should not be accepting the consequence of their patient's decision-making. What what I try to do on behalf of of our organizations when I talk to a legislator or I talk to the public I hope that I can be that voice that says to a politician or to an advocacy group, when you think about what the provider is doing for you, please move away from that antagonistic thought that you may or may not have and really look at it as a true will wanting to be one team because that dichotomy really has taken a life of its own within the medical community. And they struggle mightily against some of that, and and that's a that, that's a challenge. 
When you look at, for instance, in Connecticut, I have been purposefully positive when I've talked at places where I get to represent physicians with advocates. Do not view that shared savings as a negative or is a an opportunity to minimize access. You really need to embrace it because you're rewarding that positive behavior because the greatest majority of providers want to do what's right. Yeah, I've heard it said more and more often lately, just this idea that healthcare is a team sport, you know, that right. everybody has to be collaborating and working together. And if just because every stakeholder from legislation to patients to everybody in between Everyone has vested interests. Everyone's is intertwined and interconnected. And right. this, the second that someone acts divisively and their kind of cog in the wheel becomes disconnected, the right, you know, all the wheels fall off the bus. All the wheels. <laughs> and at the end of the day, right now, whether it's perceived or real or not, I think the healthcare community feels burdened with the current state of healthcare transformation. They want to provide high quality care. There is not a provider that I talk to that tells me I, I want to charge for every event so I can maximize the amount of money I go in that I get at the end of the day. And I really don't care about the care of the patient. Not a single one has ever told me that they don't try to place that patient ahead of their needs. But at the end of the day, they are struggling, especially, you know, with those providers that want to be independent and want to have a, a private office. They want to have their doors open. But at the end of the day, they've got to pay the light bills. They've got to pay, you know, the rent. They have to pay their staff who wants an annual raise. And when you don't see that fee-for-service is going up and you don't see that the revenue is changing, but you see that the cost of providing health care continues to grow, it is not in the power of a physician to curtail it. And that's sort of where they are getting today some frustration. And I think that's where me as the PHO get to come in because I hope that they feel that we have their back. We're representing them to as, as aggressively we can. We're informing them of the rules of the road so that they feel comfortable in the engagement and doing the business side of the healthcare so that when they see that patient, they're really focused on that patient. And I'm hoping from my perspective that the PHO takes some of the burden off of their shoulders and allows them to feel more comfortable with the business of healthcare. Given all of the risk sharing that you've been doing and for the length of time that you've been doing it, have you figured out how to make these programs cash net positive? I mean, have you gotten to that place? We have been successful in being positive, but we haven't achieved the expected potential of displacing fee-for-service. So if you look at Medicare shared savings in Connecticut, think about it. In order to take care of a Medicare beneficiary in that world, you have to come under a target price, and you have to do it for 365 days. And you have to be able to do it with high quality because you have to meet all these quality metrics and utilization metrics. And the, the number of ACOs in Connecticut that have been successful to get shared savings is extremely limited. Our own experience, we were fortunate to get our ACO was successful in our first round of ACO. But 
we are one of the current 75% who on an annual basis do not get shared savings. So we have transformed. So that one program, that one program we haven't found value. But yet on the bundled payments, we've been able to go from a negative position to a positive position, and we've been able to really work at that network. So we have been able to find in every program how to overcome the deficiencies if we have enough information and if we have enough ability to track those patients through all the transitions of care. So we now know how to advocate for the right amount of information and the right amount of X in order to be successful to a program. So that's why we're very excited in Connecticut to see CPC Plus being considered. And we're really hoping that our commercial and our government really put that as a bailiwick for 2017 and get us into those new models because we know what how to be successful in those programs. What we haven't been able to do is prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can move our physicians and our staffs and our hospitals and people away from the traditional fee-for-service side and live in that new world because we have never been able to produce the amount of revenue on a quality perspective continuously that overcome or replace fee-for-service. And until we do that, until we demonstrate that, until we have the ability or the activity to do that, you're gonna, we're going to be stuck in fee-for-service or maintaining fee-for-service some, for some time. Dr. Michael Hunt, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.